0: Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss the disastrous aftermath of the Battle of Sufine. It was the deadliest affair the Arabs had experienced yet, deadlier than any engagement they had fought against either of the two empires they had vanquished. Besides its mortal consequences, it created new rifts in the community, and we are about to meet the latest faction to split from the Ummah in episode 15 carriage and arbitrations. We had to end last time with the anticlimactic conclusion of the Battle of Safin. Instead of resulting in a victor to unite the Ummah and end the first fitna, it left the Muslims more divided than ever. Both sides had fought hard and after 70,000 deaths, the Iraqis were about to win the week-long war when Amr ibn al-As's gambit brought the fighting to a grinding halt. It's difficult to overstate how decisive this move turned out to be. It not only saved Muawiyah from certain defeat, But it also undermined Ali's position in deep and so far unseen ways. Amr personally attended the drawing up of this agreement a few days after the warring had stopped, in early August of 657. Al-Ash'ath bin Qais, that tribal leader of the Kindah who seemed to have missed being in command had a ball playing the role of Amr ibn al-As's obliging counterpart. While it goes without saying that the entire Syrian side unquestioningly backed their leadership the Iraqi side were not all on the same page. The war weary majority were happy with this development, and al-Ash'ath was happier still to represent them. A sizable minority, though, say about a quarter of the total, maybe less, were dismayed by how things were playing out. Some of them, like Madik al-Ash'dar, were die-hard supporters of the caliph, and they were appalled by the downright mutinous behavior of their own comrades, while others were so embittered that they blamed both sides for what was taking place. Al-Ash'ath attempted to humble Malik al-Ash'dar at this event by forcing him to sign the arbitration agreement, knowing that the man whom he saw as his rival for influence among Qahtani Arabs would be loath to do so. Malik refused, and he called the whole thing a farce and a surrender. Al-Ash'ath protested that Malik should behave as the majority saw fit, and Malik hit back with an I don't care what anyone thinks type remark, eliciting a sort of to hell with you from Al-Ash'ath. Malik got serious, Walked up close to the tribal chief and menacingly reminded him that his blood was no more sacred than any that Madik's sword had already spilled. Such was the power of Madik al Ashtar, who could openly threaten a tribal lord in front of his own kin and be admired for it instead of censured. Al Ash'ath was now totally fine with Madik not signing the agreement, which stated that Amr ibn al As and Abu Musa al Ash'ari would judge between Muawiyah and Ali next Ramadan at a point equidistant from Kufa and Damascus. When Al-Ash'ath read this document out loud to both armies, two young men from the Iraqi camp stood up and exclaimed, No judgment except gods. They charged at the Syrian side with their swords drawn, and they were quickly speared to death. While it still wasn't a thing, these two were the first Karajites. There were another seven months between then and Ramadan, so both sides made their way back to their cities. The Syrians marched back triumphantly, while the Iraqis only now began to appreciate the gravity of what had taken place. While most still supported the arbitration, its specifics had disillusioned more of them. Ahmed ibn al-As was a solid partisan of Muawiyah and infamous for his slyness and trickery. If the Syrians had been genuine about arbitration, they would have picked someone more religious or at least someone less implicated in Uthman's death. The chosen date was even more infuriating. It totally disregarded the urgency of the situation, and could only be explained as a stalling tactic by the Syrian side. The disagreement among the Iraqis became so sharp that they are reported to have started whipping one another, and the cry, no judgement except gods, was adopted as a motto by the ones now convinced that agreeing to the arbitration had been a mistake, no worse, a sin. When they arrived at Kufa, about 12,000 men, so a third of Ali's remaining army, are said to have immediately left the city in protest at the arbitration declaring that they were fully prepared to fight anyone who disagreed with them. Strangely, many of those who were now implacably opposed to arbitration were the same ones who had threatened Ali with violence if he didn't accept it back when the Syrians first proposed it. The caliph sent his cousin Abdullah ibn Abbas to reason with them, but he failed to change their minds. When he asked them why they objected to looking for answers in the Quran when Muslims disagreed, they replied by asking him whether he was seriously calling Amr ibn As a Muslim they were apparently so scandalized by the final agreement that they looked upon their opponents as apostates who were to be fought into submission as a religious duty. When Abdullah told his cousin of his failure, Ali came to speak to them in person. Their main argument stemmed from their motto, Judgment was God's alone, and mere men had no right deciding who was right and who was wrong. Ali replied that he had never agreed to human arbitration, only arbitration by the Quran. But since the written word was silent, it needed men to pronounce it, and he reassured them that if the arbitration did not adhere to the spirit of the Holy Word, he would reject its verdict and return to war. They asked him if he had much faith in the arbitration, and he replied that he did not, but that he hoped God might restore peace to the Ummah during its truce. He reminded them that they were among those who had forced this whole arbitration upon him, despite his repeated warnings to them about the duplicity of the Syrian leadership. He then asked them all to return to Kufa, and most sources agree that they apologized for disobeying him, pledged allegiance once more, and made their way back to the city. A few sources add that these men told Adi that they had realized the errors of their ways and repented, but that they would not rejoin him until he repented for submitting to their tyranny back at Safin when he knew in his heart the right thing to do. While it seems particularly bold to ask the caliph, cousin to the prophet, and the earliest of Muslims to repent for not having stood up to you, It is consistent with their reasoning and behavior later on, so who knows. Ali is alleged to have asked God to forgive any sins he had committed and confided in them that he believed the arbitration was just a stalling tactic Muawiyah and Amr had resorted to so that they could escape defeat, and that the two sides would be back at war when it was all over in six months or so. Many of these men now reigned in their misguided zealotry, but the most radical among them behaved even worse. They walked around telling people in Kufa to prepare for battle and got into fights with those who still believed in the possibility of a successful arbitration bringing the ummah back together. Having already publicly committed to it, Ali had to distance himself from them and their claims that the caliph had no faith in the process either. They interrupted him during his sermons with the now infamous motto, No Judgment But Gods, to which Ali replied that they were using true words to spread falsehoods. This situation persisted up until the arbitration was about to start after which it got much worse. The arbitration ended up taking place the month after Ramadan in a town called Dommat al today in northern Saudi Arabia. Each side sent their representative along with an agreed-upon retinue of 400 men. While these men were heading to Doma al a pair of Kufa's troublemakers went to see the Caliph. They downright ordered Ali to prepare his armies for battle, to fulfill his duty to God and strike his enemies. When he counseled them to wait until the arbitration was over, they said that they could no longer abide his sinful behavior. They declared they were ready to seek the righteous path and in doing so would find pleasure even in death. Ali tried reasoning with them, but they left proclaiming their trademark no judgment but gods. These two now met with other like-minded men in secret and agreed to leave the city for a small town north of Kufa by a bridge east of the Tigris. The secrecy was important because they were by now a hated minority who were clearly up to no good. It's unclear whether they managed all this or if they were discovered several times along the way, as sources contain narrations implying both, but within a month or so there were thousands of them near Jisrin the al-Nahrawan, psyching one another up about how they were the only true Muslims left in the world. They tried reaching out to other like-minded Arabs and met some success in Basra where a few hundred more joined them from. These were the Karajites, they got their name from the fact that they left the Ummah, which in Arabic makes them the Khawarish. We'll get back to them in a bit though, because right now the long-awaited arbitration was finally getting underway. We already know that Hadi was egregiously denied his choice of representative, and he sent his first choice and cousin Abdullah ibn Abbas to counsel Abu Musa al-Ash'ari and make sure he didn't fall for any of Hamid's wily traps. Abu Musa seems to have resented this, and he admonished Abdullah and his Kufan retinue more generally for their lack of trust in him. The Syrian side had none of these issues, of course. Amr's posse had full confidence in his, both his ability and intent. While Abu Musa comes off as eager to work out a compromise which would reunite the Ummah, Amr said he could not begin negotiations before they agreed on the circumstances underpinning this conflict, asking Abu Musa to admit that Othman had been wrongly killed. This wasn't just besides the point. It was something which Muawiyah's messengers to Adi had repeatedly asked the caliph to confirm before the Battle of Safin. It was always framed in binary terms. Othman was either a just man unjustly murdered or a bad man justifiably killed. Adi's nuanced responses back then denied them the rhetorical victory they sought. But Abu Musa may have reasoned that it was best to begin this negotiation by showing some good faith and being agreeable. In his acceptance, he neither brought up any examples of Uthman's more questionable behavior nor the mind-boggling fact that Amr had been one of his most vocal critics up until the caliph's violent death. Pleased with his admission, Amr then asked Abu Musa if he knew of anyone more justified in demanding revenge for the fallen caliph than Muawiyah, whether any of Uthman's kin were better suited for avenging the dishonor shown to them by the spilling of their clan's blood. Again, Abu Musa may have seen these questions as overtures Amr was using to justify the past, and once more he agreed with him readily in hopes of moving the discussion onto the future of the Ummah instead. It seems that Amr basically stonewalled the negotiations after this point. He was silent and uncooperative despite Abu Musa's attempts at floating some ideas to move things forward. Abu Musa suggested an electoral council be convened, which is ridiculous if you think about it as that was basically what Ali had fought Aisha's faction to prevent and at one point he even floated a name for his preferred candidate, naming Abdullah ibn Umar as a man he thought would make a good caliph. This son of the second caliph was well known for his religious acumen and virtuous conduct, and like Abu Musa himself, he had not taken sides in this dispute. To this overall reasonable pick, Amr may have replied suggesting his own son, also named Abdullah, to which Abu Musa objected strongly because of the obvious nepotism. Amr's unhelpful attitude led to a breakdown in the negotiations, and when his intentions were finally questioned, he may have leaked all that we know about this meeting to the Iraqi retinue, leading to chaos. The Iraqis were so angry with Abu Musa's reported concessions that he felt compelled to flee to Mecca immediately, and one of the Iraqis even managed to whip Amr before being disarmed by the Syrians. He's quoted in the sources saying that his only regret was reaching for his whip instead of his sword, so hey, he gets a zinger too. The Syrians were ecstatic at these developments. They were now assured of the justice of their cause and their governor's campaign to unite the Umma under his rule. They returned to Damascus triumphantly, and shortly afterwards, probably in May, Muawiyah was declared caliph in mosques throughout Greater Syria. When news of all this reached Ali, he immediately began preparing for war. In a speech to the people of Kufa, in a speech to the people of Kufa, he chastised them for turning their backs on him in his time of need adding that now was the moment to make up for it and that this war would be the one to end the community's divisions once and for all. He wrote letters to the Karajites in Nahrawan, telling them that the conflict they had been awaiting so impatiently was finally at hand and that they should join him in the righteous struggle to bring forth God's judgment on those who had made a mockery of the Qur'an by deploying it so cynically. They wrote back, saying that Adi was only mobilizing for his own glory and that they would not join him until he repented for his sins and recanted all claims to leadership. This is when he despaired of getting their support and began focusing his efforts on amassing his forces. He met very limited success. Most sources agree that he could only put together an army a fraction of the size of the one he took to Safin, and it's not very hard to guess why. On top of his losses at Safin and the desertion of the Karajites, Ali could no longer count on tribal leaders to fill his ranks the way he could before. They had suffered heavy losses less than a year earlier and had nothing to show for it. Literally nothing. They couldn't even loot the men that they'd killed at Safin because of Ali's constant reminders that their foes were fellow Muslims. Their positions as tribal leaders were of course constantly being challenged from within by other prominent members of their tribe, all of whom were surely being courted by Muawiyah. I want to stress this contrast again. Ali addressed all Muslims as equal, while Muawiyah had a more classically tribal understanding of his people. So if you were a tribal leader, you had to realize that Ali's success would diminish the sway you had over your own tribesmen, and therefore your overall influence in the community. Muawiyah's letters, on the other hand, were always full of sweet promises of money, land, and respect, exactly the stuff tribal leaders needed to grow their own fortunes and clout. While many may have sided with Ali a year ago when they were certain of his victory, things were quite different now. On top of all this, Ali could no longer count on Madik al-Ashtar's unique charisma to whip his supporters into line. After appointing his most loyal partisan as governor of Jazira or northern Mesopotamia, he had recalled him to Kufa with new orders. Madik was to replace the caliph's stepson Muhammad bin Abi Bakr as governor of Egypt. It seems strange that Ali would do away with his most effective commander right before he intended to go to war, but it also highlights that the caliph planned on involving Egypt in his next conflict with Muawiyah, something his stepson had failed to make possible. In any case, Ali had a very difficult time rallying troops without Madik there to help galvanize the Qahtanis into action. Ultimately, it didn't make much of a difference, because as Ali was getting ready to mobilize his probably modest army, he received some gruesome news. The Karajites had killed one of his representatives and disemboweled his pregnant wife. His army, already disdainful of the Karajites, now insisted that they must deal with them before heading to Syria. Ali tried arguing that Muawiyah was a more dangerous threat to the Ummah, but the mob would not listen. And Al-Ash'ath bin Qais, always eager to lead, was happy to represent the more popular case, telling Ali publicly that their women would not be safe as long as the Karajites went unpunished. Ali relented once again, and he marched north to Nahrawan to face the Kharijites. He had less than 10,000 men with him to face their total of less than 5,000. Before the battle, he addressed both sides, explaining the choices he had made so far, and promised safety to any Kharijites who would abandon their cause and rejoin the Ummah. Over half of them now came over, leaving the Kharijites with just under 2,500 men. These were the most diehard of the bunch. They rushed the field proclaiming their infamous motto, and they were promptly massacred. About 400 were found wounded after the battle and Ali asked they be returned to their tribes for medical attention. The caliph's army now complained that they could not march to Syria so soon after this battle that they had to restock and rest up before going on another campaign. Ali tried to convince them otherwise, but after Al-Ash'ath protested publicly once again, the caliph relented and agreed to a short pit stop in Kufa. But his men began to sneak away back to their tribes now that the Karajites had been dealt with. Ali tried to impress upon the Kufans the need for a strong, martial response to the developments in Syria, but he was once again unsuccessful at rallying enough troops to do anything about it. This will unfortunately become a trend for the Hashemite, whose support base only got more disobedient as tribal loyalties regained their paramount importance in Arab politics. Muawiyah had been preparing to face off against the Iraqis once again after he had himself declared caliph but upon hearing of Ali's difficulties, he wasted no time in seizing the initiative. He sent one of his loyal Qurayshi commanders of the Haqq bin Qais at the head of 4,000 horsemen to attack and otherwise harass Bedouin tribes loyal to Ali and the desert between their lands. This campaign of intimidation marked a new low in the conflict between the two halves of the Ummah, as the Haq's troops are said to have looted some caravans returning from the pilgrimage in Mecca and engaged in more general acts of brigandage. Ultimately, one of the tribal chiefs loyal to Ali took it upon himself to rally his tribesmen against the raiding bands, and since the Syrians were evidently not interested in an actual fight, he could only chase them away. Muawiyah had also heard about Malik al-Ashtar's new assignment, despite measures taken to keep it a secret. This should come as no surprise to us, as Muawiyah surely had many spies among the Iraqis on his payroll. Through them, he also learned that Madik intended to avoid attention by traveling alone on a boat to the Egyptian coast of the Red Sea before making his way to Fustat with his orders to replace its governor. Muawiyah quickly wrote to a local tax collector on the coast, promising to let him keep 20 years of revenue if he could only rid him of Madik. The man had no trouble identifying Al-Ashtar when he arrived and served the man with a large scar across his eye a poisoned honey drink, killing him instantly. It was a shockingly abrupt end to one of the most influential men of his generation. When Muawiyah heard of this massive stroke of good fortune, he boasted by saying that Ali had two arms, one of which had been cut at Safin in reference to Al-Ammar Yasir, and another had just been cut in Egypt. Feeling more secure in his position, he now rewarded Amr ibn al-As by finally sanctioning the reconquest of the Egyptian province. I may have confused listeners last time by opening with how Muawiyah had no chance of defeating Ali while the caliph controlled both Egypt and Iraq, and proceeding to describe an epic battle in which Egypt played absolutely no role. While it's not explicitly stated in the sources, I believe Ali had much larger plans for Egypt, but unfortunately its governor at the time of the Battle of Siffin could not provide any sort of effective martial support. The last time we mentioned the caliph's stepson Muhammad bin Abi Bakr, he was just starting to settle into his role as governor of Egypt. He was much younger and less experienced than Qais ibn Abada, the man he had replaced, and he thought the best way of getting everything on track was by threatening anyone who did not immediately pledge allegiance to Ali with violence. This was a terrible strategy, as it galvanized the opposition, who were now further emboldened by Muawiyah's victories, his constant messages of support, and most recently, actual troops. Amr ibn al-As had always wielded influence in Egypt, and he now pushed for open rebellion against the young governor, while simultaneously invading the country from Palestine with 6,000 men, prompting Muhammad to write to the caliph asking for reinforcements. We are told that Ali had to spend up to 50 days, according to some sources, trying to rally support to send to Egypt. Ultimately, sometime in August of that year, a battle took place outside Fustat with only 2,000 men on Muhammad's side. When the lead commander Ali had sent to aid his stepson was killed, most warriors deserted the governor, who was later found hiding in an Egyptian ruin by his opponents. There is some disagreement on how he met his gruesome end, and I'm only going to mention the most convincing account because it offers us more proof of the Ummah's regression to its tribal norms. See, the man commanding the Umayyad troops had been forced to kill some of his own kin during the fight for Egypt as they were fighting on Ali's side. He was so incensed by orders to spare the life of the quraysh muhammad and the insinuation that his kin's blood was somehow less valuable, that he gave the young man an especially painful death by having him stuffed inside a donkey's carcass and burnt alive. Ali was devastated when he learned of the fate of his stepson. His speeches and letters from around then are full of angry words for the Kufans who deserted him and self-blame for having appointed a youth to such a dangerous position. His correspondence with his cousin and other confidants paint him as beyond sorrowful, almost depressed, with laments about how he held himself responsible for the young man's death and sad memories of how Muhammad had grown up playing with his other children. Even Aisha, who had gone to war against her half-brother in Basra and had publicly named him as one of Uthman's killers, now mourned his loss bitterly. She was enraged at the shamelessness of his killers and would thereafter curse Amr and Muawiyah at the end of her every prayer. With Egypt securely in Syrian hands by September, Amr ibn al As suddenly reached out to Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. He wrote to him with great respect, telling him that the two had not fulfilled their promise to the community and that he would like to resume their duty of arbitrating who would become the next caliph. This must have come as a shock to Abu Musa, who no longer represented anybody's position and had indeed lost touch with the Iraqi side after fleeing to Mecca following the fiasco that was the first arbitration at al Jandal. We have nothing in the sources to suggest that Abu Musa questioned this strangely timed request, only that many of the leaders of Mecca and Medina were invited to this event as well. While the Arabs on the peninsula had officially declared their allegiance to Ali, the caliph was far away and busy trying to manage his rebellious armies, all while things were changing back in the desert. Iraq and Syria had been at war for a while now, and the people living on the Arabian peninsula had grown increasingly reliant on Egyptian goods and grain. Now that Muawiyah was in control of this crucial source of food, most of the prominent men of the peninsula must have felt it would be wise for them to attend this event, and Abu Musa may have been swayed by similar considerations as well. Only Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas, who had so far not declared for anyone, refused to attend the meeting. So Abu Musa and all these important Arabs showed up to Udruh, in Syrian territory back then, Jordan today, around January of 659 only to find Amr ibn Aas waiting for them with Muawiyah and his Syrian army in tow. Despite this, Abu Musa was comforted by Amr's respectful demeanor and the two agreed to meet in private and pick up where they had left off. Abu Musa's position this time was that Muawiyah and Ali both had too much baggage to stand a chance at uniting the ummah, and so another candidate must be chosen by convening an electoral council. Anticipating objections from Amr, he added that Muawiyah's popularity in Syria was commendable and that he could remain its governor so long as its Muslims had nothing to complain about. Amr surprised Abu Musa by agreeing with him that neither candidate stood a chance at uniting the caliphate, but he rejected his appeals for an electoral council. He asked instead why not let the Muslims themselves decide who to pick. All the two of them had to do was publicly declare that neither candidate was fit for the job, and surely the virtuous men in attendance would have the necessary wisdom to pick the best course of action. We're not told how long Abu Musa deliberated this proposal before agreeing to it. With everybody gathered in attendance, the two men announced that they had reached a verdict. Abu Musa asked Amr to do the honors, but Amr refused, saying that it would send a stronger message if both of them spoke, and that Abu Musa should begin, as his precedence in Islam was well known to all. Abu Musa stood before them and proclaimed while visibly gesturing, quote, I remove Ali's claim from leadership as surely as I remove this ring from my finger, end quote. Amr ibn al came up after him, removed a ring from his finger, and said, And I confirm Muawiyah as caliph as firmly as I place this ring on my finger while putting the ring back on. Abu Musa was aghast at this bold-faced betrayal. He called Amr a miserable dog, and he was called an idiot donkey in return. This classy exchange and any objections to the announcement must have been drowned out by the jubilant cries of the Syrian army. Since there are no reports of pledges of allegiance being taken for Muawiyah at this point, the peninsula is still considered a part of Ali's caliphate. The event was simply a show of force, orchestrated for the benefit of both the Syrian troops and the tribal notables of the peninsula. The Syrians were now surer than ever that they had always been on the right side, Islamically speaking, and the men of Mecca and Medina must have realized by now that there was little that they could do to stop Muawiyah from controlling their future. Some sources say that Abdullah ibn Umar, son of the second caliph, put up some minor resistance to this charade, but quickly realized how dangerous it was to be the sole dissenting voice and decided against agitating any further. If you've been rooting for the Hashemites, this must have been an especially tough episode for you to listen to. The caliph lost his beloved stepson and his most effective right-hand man, Malik al-Ashtar. His supporters were increasingly disunited and disobedient, all while Muawiyah's power continued to grow. Now that the Ummah's unity was ebbing, the tribal tendencies which the Arabs had put behind them were beginning to resurface, and the Tuduhat on the Syrian sides were experts at stirring and channeling those motivations. By contrast, Ali addressed the Arabs as the Muslims they professed to be and argued with them along lines of religious duty and virtue. Join me next time to see how things unfold, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.